Good morning, church. Good to have you here this morning. Um, if you're new with us, uh, my name is Chad McCartney. I'm the pastor of discipleship here, so uh, bummer on you. Brandon's gone today, so you get second, second place, maybe even third, depending on the rest of the staff. But um, Hey, I, I want to share some praises and some really exciting things, too, as we just came out of our group's promo and getting people connected this fall. We had 110 new people sign up to be engaged in groups. That's super exciting. That's a heartbeat for us here at Austin Oaks Church. We don't want you walking through this journey alone. We had uh, three different new re-engage marriage small groups start up as well with new leaders in there. That's super exciting to have that. And then we've had seven discipleship groups kick off as well this fall. So we're extremely excited about what God's doing in people's lives and, and the journey that people are going on in the midst of that. As well, uh, if you're new, uh, we're in the midst of a series. In fact, we're wrapping up a series today that we've titled Altars. Uh, and uh, before I jump into kind of a summary of that, I want to give you a little charge of something that we're doing as a congregation. So this week, we want to challenge you to, to go out and find a stone, uh, a hand-sized stone. Not, not, it's not something you need to you know, back up your F-150 to put it in, please, on your hand, a hand-sized stone. And then this Thursday, we have our revival night. We want you to bring it to revival night, and from that, we're going to create something that's a, a remembrance of the series and pointing forward to where we're going. So hand-sized stone sometime this week. Bring it to revival night uh, Thursday night over in the community hall. You'll hear more about that. Uh, and then uh, you're going to see what happens from that. So we are in this series on altars, uh, talking about an altar that, that represents a place of worship or a place of remembrance to God or a place of interaction with God. And, and we've seen in the life of Gideon a scenario of an altar he built. And then we watched Abraham build multiple altars in his life uh, for various reasons. From the first time God met him to uh, when he went to this new land and in the midst of a foreign place he built an altar of worship. Sometimes there was an altar after a, a major mistake in his life and he learned a, a new lesson and he saw God in a new way. And then Last week, obviously, an altar of great significance in a sense of offering his own son and God rescuing that and, and teaching us an incredible lesson about that. Altars were places of worship, but we're New Testament believers. What does this mean for us? Like, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to set up altars in our homes? in our yards, in our living room, inside our churches? Are we to put one up in the office break room? Are we to set one up outside Terry Black so we don't eat too much? Or maybe at the domain so you don't spend too much? Like, what are we supposed to do today as New Testament believers when it comes to altars? That's the question we want to ask today. What does an altar look like for us is New Testament believer. So we're going to look in the book of Hebrews today, chapter 13, and we're going to answer this question, what about us, the church, the people of God in this time, in this place? How are we to worship God, and what does an altar look like for us? So four questions I want to see 
and help you see that this passage answers for us in regards to that. The first one is, what is our altar? Or what is my altar today? What does it look like for me as a New Testament believer to worship God? The second thing we're going to ask is, what do I do at that altar? Like, are you supposed to bring a, a sacrifice, an animal, or, or come from a sacrifice or a grain offering? Because people get caught up in doing these things thinking, I read this here, is that what I'm supposed to do now? What does it look like for me to worship as a New Testament believer? How, how do I do it? So what do I do at the altar? How do I do that? And then lastly, where do I go to find that altar? What's my altar? What do I do at that altar? How do I do it? And where do I go to find it? If you have your Bible with you, uh, open it up to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, if you're new to the Bible and that's a, a complicated place to find, the passages will also come up on the screen, so you can just follow along with us on the screen as well. Hebrews, to give you a little background, you'll see that. Hebrews is all about a, a writer writing to some early Jewish Christians. So they'd practice Judaism, all the things of the Old Testament, all the things we've heard, that was their, their faith, that was their religion, that's how they related to God. But now they had believed in Jesus Christ after his resurrection. They believed, just as the Old Testament said, it was pointing to the person of Jesus. They'd accepted that, or they'd started down that path, but they were beginning to doubt it. In fact, they were being highly persecuted by their Jewish friends that, that didn't believe that, to come back and to return to the religion that they'd grown up in. And so this whole book is this author writing to those Jewish Christians and showing them how Jesus is superior to every aspect of the Old Testament covenant that God had made. In fact, that the Old Testament covenant was made to foreshadow and to point towards God's true Savior that was coming in Jesus. And so we're picking this up right at the very end. And in this passage, he's going to talk about the very things that we want to learn about today, about what does it mean for us to worship God today. We're going to start in verse 8, a very common verse that many people quote, maybe not in context, but one you'll maybe have heard before. Verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says, so don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be established by grace and not by food regulations, since those who observe them have not benefited. He's encouraging them, don't go back to all these rules and regulations that were simply pointing towards what was coming. That's not how you relate to God. That's not how you are, are accepted by God. He's saying it's done through grace. Remember Jesus. And then he goes on to say this in verse 10. He says, we have an altar from which those who worshiped at the tabernacle, that's our Old Testament believers, do not have a right to eat. We have an altar from which those who worshiped at the tabernacle do not have a right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering, are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. For we do not have an enduring city here, 
Instead, we seek the one to come. Therefore, through him, that's Jesus, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Don't neglect to do what is good and share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. What is my altar today? This is what the author says here. He says, we have an altar from which those in the Old Testament and their tabernacle, they, they don't have a right to eat of it. Well, well, what altar is he talking about? Well, let me give you a little snapshot back into the Old Testament to some guidelines that God gave them at that time that help us understand what he's talking about here. In Leviticus, excuse me, in Numbers chapter 18, Verses 8 through 10 is God's setting up the priesthood and the Levites who were one of the 12 tribes that was set aside specifically to be priests. They were like all the pastors of, of the day. They were to set aside and they were to do all the ministry stuff on behalf of the people. And God said this to Aaron who is a, kind of the father of all of them. He says, look, I have put you in charge of the contributions brought to me. As for all the holy offerings of the Israelites, I have given them to you and your sons as a portion and a permanent statute. A portion of the holiest offerings kept from the fire will be yours, every one of their offerings that they give me. Whether the grain offering, the sin offering, or guilt offering will be most holy for you and your sons. You are to eat it as a most holy offering. Every male may eat it. It is to be holy to you. So here's what God did, is, is all the people brought their offerings and they offered them in different places, these offerings, the priests would get a portion of that. They'd get a, a chunk of that offering, and, and, and this is kind of a, 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 is a good gig, right? In their ministry, they not only did ministry, but they got a meal out of it as well. And it was a good meal. If you read the Old Testament, it was like you were supposed to bring the best of your herds, the best of your crops, a fat portion. And I, I'm always convicted by that because God wants the fat portion as the best portion, and I realize I hang on to the fat portion in my worship on a regular basis. It just seems to cling to me. But the priest got to eat of this altar, and that, he's using that metaphor. This is an altar they got to eat from. They offered the sacrifice. They got to go into the presence of God and, and worship and offer, but they got to eat and be satisfied and provided for in that altar. But there was one time they could not eat. Leviticus 16, verse 27 says, the bull for the sin offering, and this section talks about the day of atonement. The one day every year where a sacrifice was offered on behalf of all the people. It was the most significant Jewish festival and a day of worship for them. And it says, the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be brought outside. So the, the body of it is brought outside the camp, and their hide and flesh and the waste was burned. So once a year, they did a sacrifice that no one ate from. They, they, they had the privilege of offering it, but then they took the carcass, they got none of that, and they brought it outside the camp, and they burned it outside there completely under the Lord. They had no right to eat of that sacrifice. 
And this author is, is drawing on that, saying, hey, that was the one they never had a right to eat from, but now we as Christians, we have the chance to participate in that altar. When over, in, in that sense, that, that day, only the high priest was able to go into the temple and into the Holy of Holies. But now, we all have that privilege. And he's saying that here. We have an altar from which those who worship at the tabernacle do not have a right to eat. What is that altar? That altar, my altar, our altar, is the cross of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is that sacrifice. It's not a bull. It's not a goat. It's Jesus. We have an altar as New Testament Christians. And it's the cross. And it's not a sacrifice you bring because no sacrifice you or I could bring is ever going to be sufficient for the God we worship. And so God not only provided the altar, he provided the sacrifice as well. So what am I supposed to do with that altar? I'm so glad you asked that question. The author tells us this. He says, you have an altar from which those who worship at the tabernacle do not have a right to eat. They got to eat. They, those, the, the priests were satisfied. They were filled. They were provided for at those altars except for on the Day of Atonement. And now this author is saying, hey, we've been welcomed into not just the sacrifices in general, but the most significant one. And you have a right now to eat at that one that no one has ever been able to eat at. In fact, not just eat. We actually have the privilege of feasting at this altar, even like this elite group, the Levites or even the high priest never had the chance to do so. So what does it mean to eat at this altar? I want to show you that it means to be deeply and richly satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. To be deeply and richly satisfied. Jesus talks about this in one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament that when you understand it and see it in this light makes absolute total sense. It's confounded his believers from, from that time on. Even Christians today, many denominations wrongly understand this passage and, and apply it in totally incorrect ways. But when you see it here properly, you get exactly what he's talking about. I'm just going to read a handful of those passages in, in John chapter 6. And if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, John chapter 6 is where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And then he has all the people coming back, and they're just wanting more food. They just want him to give them, you know, more McDonald's. Just give us more bread. Give us more food. Just feed us. And he's saying, you're missing the whole point. Because this food will never fully sustain you. You're going to die no matter how much of this food you eat. And then he goes on to talk about himself. He says, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life. What is that food? Which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal approval on him. What is this food that Jesus is talking about? He's gonna tell us. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. 
Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourself. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Jesus is revealing to us that he is that sacrifice. His was that body. And we're not eating of the body like the priest did of the carcass. We're eating of it in a spiritual way. We're eating it in the sense of this body, this body is the only body that's ever lived perfectly before the Father. And if you try to, to depend on your body to be right with God, it'll never be enough. He said, this blood, this blood is the only holy blood that's ever been offered to truly forgive sins. And if you try to drink of any other blood, if you try to find your forgiveness in any other way, if you try to make up for your bad deeds by being better, all the little tricks and the trades that we use to get right with God on our own, you'll never meet that standard. And Jesus is telling us, the author is telling us here, I have provided the altar. I have provided the sacrifice. Come and eat. Come and be satisfied. I want to ask you, is that your priority? Why? For seeking the presence of the living God? When you come and gather to worship, is that the priority? Why? For when you come? Are you recognizing how desperately you need to feast on the person of Jesus Christ and the gift that he's given you of eternal life? This should be the only altar in our life. It should be the altar that we visit daily and continually. In fact, I remember the old phrase growing up, you are what you eat. That has never been more true than with this truth. What are you feasting on? Because what you satisfy yourself in is what you will become. So how do we do this, Chad? Like, I get the picture, I get the metaphor, you know, satisfy yourself at the cross. That's what we're to do. To eat at that altar is to satisfy yourself at the cross. But how do we do this? You're going to see three ways that the author clearly gives us to be satisfied in Jesus. This is our greatest problem. 
The moment you are fully satisfied in him, every other aspect of your life will line up to please him. It's just how it works. Because you'll pursue him, you'll be fed by him, you'll be strengthened by him. We tend to do everything else. We try to do all the things to get to him. And he's saying, I've done the things. Come and be satisfied in what I've done. And here's what the author says in the first one. And it's this here. I'm going to summarize it and then we'll look at it. You need to receive the radical acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice. That's the first step in in satisfying yourself in the cross. Receive the radical acceptance of Jesus Christ. The author says it here. Therefore, Jesus also suffered. Just like that animal did, he suffered outside the gate. Why? So that he may sanctify the people by his own blood. Jesus died. He suffered. He suffered outside the gate so that you could be sanctified, so that I could be sanctified. That's just a fancy word, in a sense, for being set apart, for being set apart for God. When you realize that God has done that, it changes how you think. It changes who you are. And, and forgive my illustration, but it's the, the best I could come up with, so just bear with me in this. I, I think of every time I go to HEB, we got a new HEB, by the way, out by us, and it's kind of exciting to have something like right on the edge of our neighborhood. So we're at HEB a lot, so you're probably going to hear a lot of HEB like illustrations from me in, in the future, but, but hear me out on this. When you go to H-E-B, when I'm at H-E-B, I, you got a cart, and, and you're wandering these aisles, and there's like boatloads of groceries. They are all over the place. And you're grabbing them. I'm grabbing a grocery. I'm grabbing something, and I'm putting it in my cart. I'm getting the things that I want, and I'm putting them in my cart. I am setting them apart from every other grocery in that store. And guess what? Once I get them in my cart, I go to the cashier and I pay the price for those groceries. Because those groceries are mine. They're going home with me because I've set them apart and I've paid the cost to have them and I get home with them. And guess what? Guess what's never happened in all the years that I've grocery shopped? I've never had one of my groceries say, hey, I want to be on this part of the shelf. Can't you put me up over here? It's more comfortable over here. I like this part of the shelf. You know what else? It's it's never said, hey, hey, don't prepare me like this. I like a little bit more salt when you cook me. I want some oil. It's never said any of that stuff. It's never, I've never had a brisket that said, you know, my dad, my dad was so full of bull, I, I can't really be a good brisket. Never happened. They're just thankful to be there. They're set apart. They're in my home, and they are doing what I have called them to do because I set them apart, and I paid the price for them. And that's what's been done for you and me. You and I have been set apart. We have been pulled from the shelves, pulled from the masses of a world that's going to hell in a handbasket, and we deserve to be there as well. And the God of this universe has chosen you and pulled you out and paid the price for you to belong to him. And if that doesn't change and transform 
the way you think about life, nothing will. The problem is we forfeit our right to eat, to enjoy this, to participate at this altar, as this author says, when we fall back to living based on our own religious merit rather than Jesus. That's why he's warning us. He's saying, hey, hey, remember, don't go back. You have an altar from which those who worship in that old way have no right. We are prone to go back to that old way. And when we don't eat of this new altar, we forfeit the right. When you come here, when you gather in Jesus' presence and you try to do it based on your merit, on your worth, on your sacrifices, you are eating at the old altar. And you miss out on the right to eat at this one. You say, well, Chad, what does that look like? Well, here's some things that I think come out of our mouths when we're eating at the old altar. You know, I deserve blank. You know, they need to do more of things like this for me because of blank. People owe me because I've done blank. I don't deserve to be treated like blank. I put my time in. I deserve blank. These are all the, the, the fruit of our lips that come out when we're worshiping at the old altar of our sacrifices, of our merit, of what we bring to the table. The, the flip side of that, sometimes it manifests in a different way, and it can be like this. I don't have what it takes to serve God. Again, you're basing your relationship with God on your merit. Or, or my past disqualifies me from serving God. That's feasting on the old altar again. I've been hurt by the church, so I have the right to blank, blank, blank. All of these are the fruit of lips that are eating at the wrong altar. All of these reveal that you're feasting on something or someone, but it's not Jesus. Jesus rejected all of these. He despised the shame that produced them. And he calls you and me to follow him. How else we do that? First, we receive that radical acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice. The second thing we see in this passage is, is, a, is a fruit of that. He says in verse 15 uh, here, he says, Therefore, through him, through Jesus, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is, the fruit of lips that confess his name. One of our values here at Austin Oaks is to be captivated by Jesus. That's what this is getting at. That when you're captivated by him, when you realize that he chose you, he called you out, and he set you apart, and he paid every bit of the price for you to be who you are today, you can't help but want to speak about what he's done in your life. You become a vehicle of praise in everything you do. And I want to quote from you, actually not quite a quote, it's, it's some statements from two people that I've learned a lot about this from, and, and I've rewritten this, so these aren't their exact words, but they are their thoughts, okay? I want to give them credit. One part of this is from C.S. Lewis, 
And another part is from John Piper. But I've, I, I don't understand any of those guys, and they're way so, too smart, so I've, I've taken my words and put it into their thoughts, okay? So anything that sounds really dumb and corny, guess whose that is? Mine. Anything that sounds incredibly profound and just blows your mind, guess whose thoughts those are? Theirs, okay? So we got that straight. So here, here, but here's what they say about this concept. C.S. Lewis, as you know, was a, a, a convert who wasn't a believer for a long time, and he wrestled with his faith over and over again. And one of the things that, that confounded him the most, one of the things that offended him the most as he was wrestling is all this stuff about praising God. Like, what kind of God is up there saying, praise me? Come on, I want to hear more good things about me. And, and that just blew him away. Like it just, he couldn't quite mess with it. And then suddenly God opened his eyes to the truth of it. And these are the things that he penned. He said, the mo- most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment or approval or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising the one they love, readers their favorite poet, sports fans their favorite team, walkers their favorite path, musicians their favorite performance, artists their favorite composition, athletes their favorite sport or player. We praise the weather, or we curse it if you live in Texas, We praise wines, actors, horses, colleges, countries, historical figures, children, flowers, mountains, great foods, nice outfits, rare automobiles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be our inner heart made audible. I had not noticed Either that just as people spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge others to join them in praising it. Wasn't that game amazing? Isn't that sunset spectacular? Doesn't this outfit look incredible? Was that not the most powerful movie you've ever seen? Isn't our pastor one of the most handsome men you've ever seen (laughs) when you compare him to Chad? The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what we all do when we speak of what we care about. If God is truly the greatest good, and if we humans tend to obey and pursue the things in which we most delight and find satisfaction, then the greatest good for any person is to find their deepest delight and greatest satisfaction in God. And if that is so, then praise for God and to God will be the fruit of this person. John Piper says this, one of the reasons that so many Christians lead such weak, joyless, and ineffective lives is that this exhortation is disobeyed most of the time. Ask yourself, does the praise of God grow out like fruit on your lips continually? Most of us would have to say no. But God would not have called us to this experience of continual praise if it were bad for us or impossible for us. If you want it, 
you may have it. And not to want it is to disobey Scripture, to disobey God. First, we receive the radical acceptance. Understand who you are in Christ. And from that, naturally, the fruit of praise to him will come. The last thing we see in this passage is simply more outworking, not just our lips, but our hands. And, and, and the author says, and I'm going to summarize it this way, we please God by doing good and sharing your life in community. We please God by doing good and sharing life in community. He says it like this in verse 16, don't neglect to do what is good and to share. And that word in the Greek is the word koinonia, which is the, the, the richest word of fellowship that doesn't just mean hanging out. It means you're living in a community where your resources are shared with someone else and theirs with you. You are intertwined with one another in everything that you have, your time, your talents, your resources, your heart, your affections. That's what he's saying when he talks about sharing in this way. So what does that look like for us? Well, you see it maybe earlier in the passage when the author says in verse two, he says, don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing so, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. It's being hospitable. Not just like having people in our homes, it's a mindset of hospitality that welcomes the outsider, that welcomes those who are at a distance, so that when you come to church, your mindset is, who else can we welcome? Who, what stranger, what outsider can we make feel comfortable today? Because I was once an outsider. It's in your home, it's in your neighborhood, in your everyday life. It's being a place that says, those who feel like they're outside, I want to welcome you in because I know what it's like to be outside. I was once not God's child, and now I am. That's the fruit that pleases him. And to the degree you live for others and those outside your circle, you reveal how satisfied you truly are in Jesus. He says, share your life with other believers your time, your spiritual gifts, your resources. When you come to church, you don't worship when you come and sit and just hear. You come and worship. You show that you're satisfied in God when you come and you participate as a congregation in what we're doing. You give of your life. You're engaged in other people's lives. Your time is other people's time. Your resources are other people's resources. Your talents are other people's talents to love them and serve them and to make them feel like they're part of this body. And to the degree you do that, you reveal how satisfied you are. You don't do these things to get satisfied. You do them because you are. Because you've already done what the author said prior to this. There's only one question left to ask. Where do I find this altar? Where do I need to go to get this meal? Where can I feast on what Jesus has provided?
the author tells us in verse 13. He says, let us, he exhorts us, he commands us, he calls us, let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. You want to eat at this altar? You want to feast at this altar? You want to worship at this altar? Then you need to go outside the camp to see it. As you know, the Israelites traveled around in in camps for many years, and they set up camp, and outside the camp was where there was wild animals, where there was all the danger was out there, and and the junk and the the, the trash and the, the refuse, all that stuff, they put that stuff outside the camp. And so it became a metaphor. And even as the city was built outside the walls of Jerusalem, it was the same thing. Inside the walls, it was safe, it was protected, it was comfortable. You were around people that were just like you. Outside the camp was strangers, was foreigners, was wild animals, was refuse, was dung heaps burning with trash and junk. And that's where they put Jesus when he offered this sacrifice for you and me. You see, to go outside to the camp is to leave my place of security. It's to mingle with strangers, outsiders, People unlike myself. Because that's where you find Jesus. To go to Jesus outside the camp is to join Jesus in the risky places, the dangerous places, the uncomfortable places. What's outside the camp? Outside the camp is uncomfortable things, people who think differently, people who live differently, people who love differently, people who have different ways of talking, people with different backgrounds, different lifestyles, different beliefs, different desires. Yeah, but Chad, like, why would we want to go out there? Because that's where Jesus is. That's where he says you'll find him. And if you want Jesus... If you want to feast on his altar and experience his presence, you have to go out to him. See, God is saying to us, he's saying to this group of Christians in the first century, and he's saying it to you and I in the 21st century, go outside the camp because my son went outside the camp for you. Yes, gather. Gather in the safe place. Gather here to remember me. He's not saying we shouldn't do this. He commands us to do this in the same book. He says, gather here to remember me, to remember whose you are, but go out there to be who you are, who you've been called to be. How else does a lost, dying world hear about Jesus if all we ever do is huddle together and talk about him? If they don't see someone lifted up on a cross out in their neighborhood, 
because they're willing to live for something greater than this world. They may never see. Jesus went outside the camp so that you and I could be in the camp. And now he's telling us to take up our cross and follow him. Today we're going to remember that and we're going to celebrate it. We're going to reflect on it. We're going to bear it. All of those things when we celebrate communion. We're going to do it just a little differently. We're going to ask you to get up and come get your elements. But I don't want you just to get up and walk and get them. I want you to get up and pretend you're walking outside the camp to where Jesus is. I want you to see him. See the love in his eyes as he lays down his life for you and for me. As he was beaten and mocked and ridiculed so that you could be welcomed. I want you to experience that as the worship team plays and you walk and grab the cup with him and just take it back to your seat. Reflect on what he's done. And in a moment, we'll celebrate and take these elements together. You see, as you go out to the camp right now, Jesus is not high and lifted up. He is rejected and despised. He's not seated at the right hand of his father. He's pushed outside the camp, beaten in humility. He's not clothed in luxury and showered in earthly pleasures. He's stripped naked, beaten, and judged for our sins. He does not demand his rights and lord his authority. He serves those who mock him and submits to those who are less than him. I want you to go outside the camp and see this Jesus. Go outside and bear his disgrace. Go outside and eat at this altar. Feast on the feast that he has prepared for anyone and everyone who recognizes that we are or we once were outside the camp. When you're ready, come up, grab your elements, and return to your seat. We'll take them in a moment.